Good morning. If you took dramas having to do with the legal system off of TV, the airwaves would be empty. Have you noticed? Some of these shows, they call them procedurals, are just permanent, it seems, eternal. And if you watch them closely, I don't, but some of them are really the same story told every week, right? Somebody's dead, the same crew shows up, they stand around in puzzlement looking at the body, somebody dramatically takes their sunglasses off and makes, a, makes kind of a dark pun of a joke, and then it just seems unsolvable, and then some brilliant person, sometimes it's the guy, sometimes it's the girl, they see everything with keen insight, and they inevitably catch the bad guy. Have you noticed? They know exactly what we want. In fact, some of these shows, they just do the same story in different towns. And by the millions, people still tune in. I kind of get that. The real-life proceedings of watching someone on trial for their life, or at least their liberty, is just about as compelling as human experience gets. That's where we find ourselves in Scripture today. The Apostle Paul is going to give the fifth of six defenses recorded in the book of Acts. It was Luke, the same believer in Jesus who gave the gospel of Luke, who wrote also the book of Acts. And oftentimes in the book of Acts, Luke is a companion to Paul. And if you're reading across the book of Acts, he, say, he narrates things that happened to others, and then he switches and says, and we, because Luke was there. Paul in Acts, if you'll look with me, please, in your Bibles to Acts toward the end of the book. If you don't have a Bible with you, this is going to be a long, drawn-out controversy in the book of Acts. You'll benefit by reading it along with me. If you don't have your Bible, there should be one near you. I'm in Acts chapter 26, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. It's a setting designed to intimidate Paul. He's been in prison for over two years because of his faith in Jesus. A riot broke out against him. He was almost beaten to death. He was rescued by Roman soldiers. He was transported to where he finds himself captive now under a very heavy Roman guard. And there's people near him who want him dead, and there are many others waiting outside in freedom should Paul be released. If the government won't imprison him or put him to death themselves, there are people outside who hate Paul so deeply. Some of them have actually taken a vow earlier to not eat or drink again until Paul was dead. That's hatred. That's pressure. And this setting in Acts 26 is a hearing because what you have here is a very confused Roman governor who just came into the job, who's been kind of handed off this prisoner. And this pagan Roman has absolutely no idea what to do with Paul. It's a strange religious controversy in his mind. He cannot begin to wrap around his mind around the Jewish belief in their scriptures 
He doesn't understand their controversies, and he certainly can't understand why Paul, who he was told once believed that Jesus was dead, now says that he's alive. But he's got someone to help him. Herod Agrippa shows up with his sister, Bernice. And those names have been almost lost in antiquity because we just don't read history much anymore. But in the ancient world, Agrippa and Bernice would have been on the front page of every tabloid because they were brother and sister, but they lived an on-again, off-again, incestuous relationship. It's just as filthy as anything. And they show up with great pomp and circumstance, dressed in royal robes. There are military people present. There are officials present. And there's an old Jewish rabbi who's been in chains And he's brought in, and we pick up the story of this unlikely witness in Acts 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand. That's an ancient custom to begin an address, signal that he's going to start speaking. Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And here's the story. And Festus, the Roman governor, has to be leaning forward, thankful to have this wicked man who at least understands the language, the culture, and the customs, who's going to hear Paul out and try to make sense about whether there's anything to these charges. Here's Paul's testimony. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now, for you and me, Pharisees, an insult. You call someone a Pharisee in these days, people know that you're calling them a self-righteous hypocrite. In Paul's day, Pharisee was not an insult at all. It was a badge of honor. Of all the people who read, studied, memorized, and tried to live out the law and the Hebrew Scriptures, as Paul says, the Pharisees are the strictest of them all. It's very likely that Paul knew most, if not all, of the Hebrew Scriptures by heart. He would also be acquainted with all the interpretations that the teachers who had gone before him had explained and had written down by their followers what God's Word meant. And Paul says, everybody knows who I am, and it's not an idle boast. It's not braggadocious. He simply was the best student of the most highly regarded teacher. And then something happened to Paul, and that's what leads him to be in chains when he gives this testimony. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Let me explain to you what's going on here. As a Pharisee, Paul believed in the resurrection of the dead, but he was convinced from Scripture and tradition that the resurrection of people would occur in the last day when God called people to judgment. What Paul found odious about the name of Jesus 
was not the idea of the resurrection, but that Jesus alone had been resurrected from the dead. That thought completely enraged Paul. He thought every day when he got up that these deluded, cultic, hateful people had turned their backs on what God was doing in Israel, were actually taking people further away from God and very likely increasing the power of Roman occupation. They were actually quite literally destroying the nation. But look in verse 8. Paul asked a good question. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, let's come into our modern world. There's a new movement in writing, philosophy. You can find a small shelf of these books at Barnes & Noble. The movement is called the New Atheism. And these are men like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. Okay? These are usually men of science. Sometimes they're philosophers, but most often they're scientists. And they write books with titles like God is Not Great or The God Delusion. The reason atheists attack so vociferously and so angrily your very belief that God exists is they understand something very simple. If there is a God who made the universe, then the resurrection of human beings is not a problem. Does that make sense to you? They want to move the argument not to the resurrection of Jesus, but to the very existence of God at all. Last week, I told you about one of the big engines that drives our culture, and it's the idea of materialism. And I don't mean that people love money. That's also true. But materialism from a philosophical point of view is the belief that the only thing that exists in the universe is matter. The wood of this piano, the muscle and bone and blood of my body, that's all there is. They have no reasonable explanation of how matter came to be, it just is somehow in a way that science cannot explain. And if matter is all there is, then quite literally you're wasting your time because you've been singing to and about a God that simply does not exist. And we have to be very careful on this point. The most a materialist will give you in the 21st century is this, if God, if the false idea of God helps you live your life, then good for you. But please don't impose it on the rest of us. Have you heard anything like that? Paul is arguing for a historic fact that everything around us, this amazingly beautiful, finely tuned universe that the Hebrew Scriptures speak of so eloquently, speak of a designer and creator that stands behind it, that matter simply did not exist out of nothing, and it did not arrange itself in this beautiful, harmonious way that you see in the universe. And if there is a God like that, who can make you with a mind to reach into nature and explore it, and a mind also to ponder the great questions of life, which your dog does not ponder, by the way, (laughs) because you are made, according to Scripture, in the image of God. You're made to relate to Him. You're made to think think thoughts after Him, to appreciate the beauty, the profundity, the enormity of the universe that He made. That's one of the instances for, that's one of the reasons I believe, among many others, that there is a God in heaven. He made the universe not only beautiful, He made it enticing, He made it explorable. He gave you the joy of learning. Why? Because God is intelligent. 
His knowledge does not grow. His knowledge is absolute, but you're made after His image to enjoy what He enjoys and to enjoy most of all Himself. So, Paul begins his defense by saying, I am a believer in God, and if God exists, why would any of you think that raising a person from the dead is unbelievable, is incredible? It's not. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This is Paul's testimony to Jesus. Paul says, there was a time in my life when not only did I not believe it, I was convinced that I should do everything possible to oppose it. But here's what Paul tells you first. When it comes to Jesus, the first thing that Paul came to understand, and I'll show you how he came to that understanding, Paul came to understand very, something very important about Jesus, and it's this. Jesus is the one who keeps every promise that God ever made us. Verse 6, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Paul was looking forward eagerly to the resurrection. He did not believe that it had already occurred in Jesus, but then he came to understand it was Jesus actually that kept all those promises. That the dozens of detailed prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures that Paul knew by heart actually referred personally and specifically to Jesus. And I have two Jewish friends who were converted who became believers in Jesus in the same simple way. Someone read to them Isaiah 53 from the Old Testament, written 700 years before Jesus was born, and when they read it and they read the details of His death, the nature of His burial, everything about His suffering and death in exquisite detail in Isaiah 53, even though they'd never been in a Christian church, they thought that can't be anybody but Jesus. And so began the exploration, and so began their faith. It's Jesus that keeps every promise that God ever made us. That's what Paul wrote the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Read Scripture with me this morning. Let's read that together. Paul wrote to the Corinthians this, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. I hope you take that home with you. People have a great deal of trouble understanding suffering in the world. You ever ask yourself that question, why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? You ever puzzled by your own difficulties, by illness, by unemployment, by broken relationships? Probably suffering in the world weakens and destroys the faith of more people than anything else in the universe. They simply can't conceive if there is a God why there is so much suffering. Paul's telling you the key. You can't deny the reality of suffering, but you have to look through that suffering to the cross of Christ because what God did in love for us is keep every redeeming, healing, it's going to be all right in the end promise He ever made to us personally by the most inexplicable and the most unfair suffering in the history of humanity. Because truly, when we ask ourselves, why do bad things happen to good people, the premise is just a little bit off. In everyday language, of course, we would say there are good people, but there are no holy, perfect people. There are no people who are as good as God. 
In fact, the opposite happens. The closer people are to actual goodness and righteousness, the, more qui the quicker they are to admit their faults and their sins. Have you noticed this? It's the psychos who've never done anything wrong that you have to worry about. I knew many years ago when I was even more unqualified than I am now to give marriage counseling. I'd been married about two years, and I had a couple who had been married about 16 in my office, and I knew their marriage was over when she, the, one of the first things the wife said to me was, in the 20 years I've known this man, he's never once apologized. Yeah, this isn't going to go well. There are no truly good, righteous people in the world. The only one who was perfectly good, perfectly righteous, he died on the cross. Why did he do that? To keep every promise that God had ever made to people who didn't deserve his love and his grace. That's what Paul understood. What he's tell, saying first in his defense is, I'm on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. And I had an expectation that God would bring the resurrection about years hence when he judged all people. But what he did instead was keep every promise he ever made to us personally through Jesus. We don't have to hope for those promises to be kept anymore because Jesus is the one who keeps those promises. But Paul said at this point, verse 9, I didn't believe it. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. How deep did that hatred go? Listen. And I did so in Jerusalem, and I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign lands. We've all seen, sadly, horribly, the worst kind of evil on display on our computer screens. You've seen these beheadings on the other side of the world. Paul understood that kind of zeal. I think it's unlikely that a man of Paul's stature actually ever laid hands or picked up stones to kill anybody, but he was present and he was in agreement. He added his religious gravitas, his religious authority and credibility to the deaths of many people. And in fact, he did something that would have been pretty odious to someone as strict and as orthodox, as ultra-orthodox as Paul was. He actually received a religious commission to leave Israel, to hunt Christians down, even to foreign countries where they'd gone to flee for their freedom in their life. In the modern world, Paul would be something akin to a Taliban fighter converting to Christianity. He was that opposed to Jesus, all the while keeping the very promise that Jesus had made to his disciples, that there would come a time when people would persecute them and even put them to death, thinking that they were rendering service to God. That's who Paul was. How did that ever change? Verse 12 tells you. In this connection, in other words, in raging fury, persecuting them in foreign cities, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me, and we had all fallen to the ground. 
I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is a hard thing for you to kick against the goads. Well, that's a strange phrase, isn't it? Anybody know what a goad is? A goad in the ancient world, see, we're reading something 2,000 years ago, was immediately understandable to Paul, but has to be explained in 2017 in Huntington Beach. In the ancient world, if you had any money at all, you plowed using oxen. And oxen, if you've ever been around them, are gigantic, very muscular, strong, and they can be very stubborn animals. I've been in very poor countries and seen people plowing with weaker animals. If you had an ox working for you, you were in good shape. But as people who ranch will tell you, one of the problems is with animals like oxen and bulls, if they decide not to move, it's pretty hard for a 150-pound man to persuade the animal to get started again. That's where the goad comes in. A goad was a very sharp, long stick that the plower, the the plowman had that he kept with him. If one of the oxen got tired and said, I've worked far enough, I'm not plowing anymore, the goad came out. And he would take that and stab the animal a couple times in the back. It was a long stick because he doesn't want to get kicked. It doesn't matter how muscular you are. If you get stabbed in the rear end a few times, you'll get moving again. And that was exactly the idea behind the oxen and the goads. And Jesus, who was a Jew and lived in Paul's world, said, Paul, you've taken a charred assignment, buddy. You've picked a tough row to hoe, as my grandmother, the farmer, would have said. You're kicking against a sharp stick. What's it mean? You can't win, Paul. You can have all this hatred. You can have all this resentment against me, but you can't beat me. Paul only has one question. I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from that moment forward, Paul made a 180-degree turn. From this moment, when he becomes convinced by the miraculous intervention of Jesus in his life, which we read elsewhere in another one of Paul's many testimonies in the books of Acts, physically blinded him so that he had to be led by the hand Paul got up staggering from this encounter, and once he got his sight back, he never, ever, ever looked back. He became utterly convinced of the reality of Jesus, and he served him just as Jesus told him he would do. Verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Here's Paul's mission, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who were sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What did Paul learn here? Something that you and I would do well to learn. That's why this testimony is in Scripture. See, Luke's not just recording history here. He's telling you about a real event where Paul stood before wicked, odious people, political connivers, to the point that if incest served them, that's what they would do. 
political climbers, treacherous, murderous people, the worst people in the ancient world are standing this, this day in judgment of Paul, but Paul doesn't tr- is not in the slightest bit troubled because he learned something important. And this is why he's giving them his testimony. He's explaining how someone who once hated Jesus could be so completely convinced to go everywhere telling people about Jesus. And here's the truth, and here's why it's in Scripture for us. Since Jesus can't be defeated, it's far better to serve him. Here's something I've learned from Jesus, not as Paul has learned it. I have not been nearly as obedient. I'm a very poor reflection of Paul's own faith. But I've learned this. Jesus doesn't negotiate, and he can't be beaten. He wins. That's what the back of your Bible tells you. Jesus is loved by some and hated by others all over the world. You can take your You can take your social media feed or look at the local or the international news, and you can know every single day of life on this earth, the name of Jesus still causes anger, fury, and in some places, murder. Even to this day, don't be the slightest bit troubled, Christian. Jesus wins. He can't be defeated. And Paul learns, since I can't beat him, it would be far better to serve him. But you know what I often do in my foolishness and in my pride? I try to negotiate with Jesus. You ever done that? And he's told you clearly, you and I are not apostles. We don't stand where Paul stood. We don't have the exact same calling in our lives, but he still calls people today to turn their hearts to him, to trust him, to love him, to obey him, and we want to argue and negotiate. It's nonsense. He can't be defeated. We'd be far, far better off serving him. And all of this happened, Paul says, very publicly. Everything that occurred to Paul occurred in the public sphere. This is one of the reasons Christianity is so deeply believable. It's provable, in fact. Keep reading the story. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus. See the irony of that? Paul was going into Syria to the capital city of Damascus to persecute Christians. What did he end up doing in Syria instead? Preaching. I mean, you can't have a more dramatic turnaround than that. He was going to arrest and start the religious process to put people to death. He ended up not only joining them, but preaching to them and to others. I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets said prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Here's what God promised. Here's the promise Jesus kept, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's the witness of Jesus. It's gone worldwide because that's exactly what Jesus promised. And at this point, the pagan governor can't take anymore. As he was saying those things in his defense, Festus, that's the Roman pagan governor, 
said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He reached his breaking point. He couldn't believe in the resurrection. He could not understand how any intelligent person could. He's not accounted for God. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational world, words, for the king knows about these things. That's Agrippa, this wicked, incestuous man, this puppet king of over the Jews. The king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner." Here's the thing about Christianity, folks. It's all public. This is a little geeky. If you'll permit me, I'll take you into something like a college classroom for just a second so that you understand the importance of what Paul's telling you here. See, in modern life, we have this simple idea. It's as if God were high on a mountain, and there are many roads that go up that mountain. You're born near one of those roads, and you walk it as best you can, trusting that the, whatever road you're on, it may have many twists and turns, and you may not be able to see the other roads or ever walk a mile on them, but you can walk through life knowing that there, if there is a God, all roads lead to Him eventually. You ever heard anything like this? What that sounds like in modern life is this. Well, that's, that's your path. That's your truth. Mine is different. Paul's saying something really important when he says this hasn't been done in a corner. He says to the pagan, I'm not crazy. I'm giving you good reason. I'm making a historical appeal. In fact, I'm speaking very specifically to the Jewish puppet king over here because he knows all about this. He lived through it. Many of these things would have been well known to Agrippa. He comes from a very long dynastic line of evil, evil people. His father was the one who killed James and put Peter in prison. His great-grandfather was the one who tried to kill baby Jesus, and it was his great-uncle that put Jesus on trial. Agrippa II, who's hearing all this, he knows. And this is the important part. It wasn't done in private. If I may speak clearly but respectfully, religions like Islam and the modern religious movement of Mormonism and other historic faiths, in other words, that point at specific historic events, always come from the same place. Someone had a private vision, a private dream, or some kind of angelic visitation about God. And that person, from their private claimed experience, went out and told the public and gained followers. That's the testimony of both Muhammad and Joseph Smith, as different as those two religious movements are. Someone had a private idea about God. They told everybody else. Those people believed Him. They told others. And many, many years later, here we are with millions of followers. Christianity is nothing like that. Christianity has one person who historically, demonstrably was born in a specific place whose life matches in exquisite details writings that were written a thousand and seven hundred or six hundred years before He was ever born. And Jesus lived the most publicly available life anybody could in the ancient world. His ministry, His life, His miracles were all done in public. He was killed in the most public and excruciating way possible. 
Roman soldiers stood over him and made sure he was dead, and people anticipating his resurrection and believing it to be a hoax arranged for the tomb to be guarded and for Roman soldiers to be posted outside of it so that his followers couldn't fake it and come and steal the body. And yet the tomb was empty, and hundreds of people who were not expecting it saw Jesus back from the dead. And they had conversations with him, they saw him, they actually touched him, they had many meals with him over more than a month of time. And all of that happened, Paul says, publicly. It wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't one man telling others about a private vision he had about God. It was God himself doing everything publicly. And then those people who saw everything happen publicly, they went and told everybody else. It's a vast difference between the Christian faith and every other religious movement in this world. It's all done publicly. It's all examinable. If you're into philosophy, it's what philosophers call falsifiable. In other words, it can be tested because it's like any other public life. If I tell you that I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I'm only 28 years old, you could check that out. That's falsifiable, and by the way, that's a bald-faced lie. (laughs) But if I tell you that last night I had a vision and I have come to believe through a dream that I had last night that I'm actually the reincarnation of John F. Kennedy, (laughs) are you in a position to tell me that I didn't have that vision? You're not. It's my word against yours. And if religious history teaches us anything, it's that the charismatic person having a private vision about God can entice other people to believe what was privately revealed to him. God did this publicly. He called his shot in writing for over a thousand years before his son was born, and his son lived every detail out, kept every promise faced every enemy. He could not be defeated, but the final thing, and I'm done, that Paul understood that is still true for us today is that this resurrection Jesus, Jesus enlisted Paul and is enlisting us into a battle for the souls of people. Look, please, with me back up in Paul's writing to verse 17. Jesus said to Paul, I am delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Here's the point of Christian witness, yours and mine and Paul's. It doesn't matter if you're not an apostle. This is what Jesus is doing in calling witnesses to himself to open their eyes, verse 18, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God for this reason, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who were sanctified by faith in me. Why does Jesus create witnesses? like me, like you, like little Evan who was just baptized a few minutes ago, for one single reason, to continue to give witness of the reality of Jesus so that eyes may be spiritually opened, so that people will move from spiritual darkness into spiritual light, so that they will move from the deceit of Satan into the family, the faith, and the holiness of God's family. That's why you're here. And if I can just be very honest with you, I don't account nearly enough, and this is a confession. I'm a product of this materialistic culture, too. In other words, this belief that matter is all there is. 
And if I'm very honest with you, in the way I behave, not in what I believe, not in what I would sign as a doctrinal statement and summary of what I believe about Jesus, but in the way I actually believe in my private relationship with Jesus, I just don't really actually believe in this spiritual reality that I can't see. That's what my behavior shows. Because if people, Christians, were convinced of the resurrection of Jesus and understood that every person they meet who doesn't already believe and love Jesus does so only for one reason, their eyes are closed spiritually. They can't believe Him. They are in darkness. They they are under the sway of a spiritual deceiver. If I believe that that was the unseen reality in my everyday world, it would move past doctrinal belief to fervent, constant prayer to the God who rules over all of it. I would read my Bible not as a matter of spiritual duty or a good spiritual habit, but to hear the very voice of God. You and I would understand that the broken relationships in our lives, the strains that we have at work, the disappointment that we have with our children and that children have with their parents, if everybody could see and hear Jesus, would be far more convinced that around us in an unseen world, the spiritual realities that were not seen by the human eye were what mattered most and what were undergirding everything, and we wouldn't have to be prompted or coaxed or preached at or yelled at to pray and read our Bibles. We would understand the spiritual reality of warfare that Paul lived in every day and that engages every Christian. Look what he wrote to the Ephesians. This is one of these pagan cities that this ultra-Orthodox, old Jewish rabbi preached the gospel to. This is a word for all Christians. It's not just for apostles. This is for ordinary, everyday Christians. Look at what a difference it makes when you actually believe that you're engaged in a battle for the souls of people. And if your ex is treating you terribly and makes no account for God, there's only one reason for that. It's a spiritual battle, and it cannot be won in the physical world. And the nature of my wandering away from Jesus and being discipled more by the culture than I am discipled by Jesus has to do with this. I think cleverness, good planning, persuasive speaking, that human things can win that battle. And church, they can't. Look what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. In fact, read it with me. I'll interrupt a couple times, but let's read the Bible together. Paul wrote to everyday Christians this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. I'm in trouble already. Where am I to be strong? In Him, not in me. You know the perennial struggle of being a disciple of Jesus? You trust your own strength more than you trust His. You say to Jesus, not by your beliefs, but by your actions, it's okay, I got this. When it really gets bad, then I'll pray. You ever live like that? Things that you cannot control that overcome you, drive you to your knees in prayer, and you realize then you really haven't been praying too much up until that moment. Paul says, get strong on the front side. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now he's going to use a word picture from the ancient world of one of these soldiers who Paul knew well from being chained to him for so long. 
He's going to use that word image. Keep reading with me. Paul said, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Wait right there. So there is a devil. And what does he do against people? He schemes. He plots. See, and here's the nature of deception. You don't know you're being deceived. The biggest dupe in the world doesn't know he's being duped. The most dangerous enemy in the world is the one that you do not believe exists. If you know something or someone hates you, you're forewarned and you're forearmed. Paul says there is an adversary that you have who is trying to deceive you. That's what part of his testimony. That's what Jesus told Paul. Paul, I am sending you to people, pagans who you previously hated, and I'm sending you to tell them about me for one simple reason. Their eyes are closed. They're spiritually blind. They live in darkness. They're being deceived by this same devil. We'll finish reading the Scripture. Paul wrote, for we do not… Oh, previous slide, please. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That's the spiritual war you're in, whether you realize it or not. And a blinded Paul rose from that Damascus road, and he never forgot it. He understood on the Damascus road that God had kept every promise He ever made in Jesus Christ, that Paul, for all of his wiles and for all of his learning, could not possibly defeat Jesus, and that something was happening to Paul that happens to Christians still, and this is why God doesn't take us to heaven immediately the moment we believe You've been called into a battle for the souls of ordinary human beings, beginning with your family, beginning with your friends, extending into your workplace. Wherever God has given you a witness for Christ and you know Jesus is real, wherever you are, it doesn't all happen inside these walls. It happens in homes and living rooms and office spaces. It happens in the professional marketplace. The reason people are such a persistent mess and no amount of education and government programs and social concerns and charities of all kind can ever address it and fix it and heal it and change the human heart is because at the most basic level, it's a spiritual fight, and it's a fight we won't win until we engage that spiritual reality. This is the effect of the resurrection. It gives you eternal vision. And finally, I suppose what I'm telling you is this. If Jesus saved you, Please tell his story. You see, notice Paul is in a hearing that is going to determine whether he goes free or whether he's killed, and all he really wanted to talk about was Jesus. He didn't try to secure his freedom. He aimed directly at the hearts of these people. Look at the end of the story. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also 
all who hear me this day might become such as I am ex- except for these chains. What's Paul saying? I wish you could all be Christians. I've told you about the singular, most important reality there is. God kept all of His promises in a man named Jesus who came from Nazareth. He is winning. He is being hated, and the blood of His followers is being shed even today, but He ultimately will win, and you're on earth to engage in that spiritual reality to tell other people about Him. If I have, after 12 years of being your pastor, if I have a regret, it's not coming here, it's not what God has done here, it's amazing what God is continuing to do here. It's this. It's that I have not more persistently, practically kept this spiritual vision in front of myself and cultivated it in your heart so that when you walk out these doors and even while you sit in these chairs listening to the Word of God, you would understand it all has to do with spiritual reality. And you and I are both subject to deception, and the only way we can see through to what is really happening, what really counts, and live lives that will be eternally important is to walk closely with Jesus. So in all sincerity, and in very different ways, I preached this pretty differently yesterday as I've talked to God about it between last night and today. I want to sincerely ask for your forgiveness for not keeping more earnestly, more realistically, this spiritual battle in front of my spiritual vision. I'm sorry if you've ever gotten the impression from any of us in church leadership, particularly from me because I can only speak for myself, if we've ever done anything with programming or any other thing that has unintentionally taken your eyes off the spiritual war that you're currently engaged in. God has acted in history. He he has kept all of His promises. He is still engaged through the victorious life of His Son. He is still engaged in the pursuit of souls in your family, in your friendships, in your workplaces. The people outside these walls who have absolutely no interest in being here because they think it's all a farce, they're what matters to God, and they are what matters to us. Yesterday, a man who was once an atheist was baptized. Now he's hungry. He often comes to two services on a single weekend to sing the same worship songs, to hear the same message because Jesus is real to him because he's a historical figure. And perhaps more so than many people who have grown kind of accustomed and numb to the routine of a local church, he sees spiritual reality. Please forgive me for not keeping that reality in front of you. And let's engage in this battle and tell his story. Can we pray together? Lord, as we move now to a time of individual prayer and reflection, I pray that you would speak to parts, that you would open eyes. Hey, can I just ask you, just personally, even though there's hundreds of you in this service, do you know him? Is He real to you? Are you walking with Jesus? If not, could I invite you in His name to turn around like Paul did? Maybe your turn won't look or feel quite as dramatic, but if you're not certain of Jesus and you've been struggling against Him, could I invite you to make this the moment where you turn and you trust Him? You stop fighting and you say, Jesus, I believe. And if you do believe, Christian, Do you keep that spiritual reality right in front of you? 
Do you pray because you think it moves unseen things and changes eternal realities? Do you read your Bible not as a drudgery or an occasional good spiritual habit, but to hear the voice of God? As we give this offering, are you aware that you're engaged in a loving act of financial sacrifice to take this good news to places you cannot personally go? Boy, if we could ever see what God sees, if we could see this war raging, this battle for the souls of men and women, this battle for your family, for your marriage, for your friendships, how it would change how we speak about ourselves and how we speak about Him. So if He hasn't been very real to you, if you've been living like a materialist, like a practical atheist, could you talk to Jesus about that right now? And we'll give joyfully. And if you're coming to faith in Jesus this morning or you have prayer requests or the names and the faces of people have been brought into sharp focus because you see them spiritually again, you see the spiritual war that you're in and perhaps you've been losing, you've been defeated, turn around, say, Jesus, open my eyes. I'm in your family. Keep my eyes open to spiritual realities. Put me to work in this unseen battle. Lord, we love you. We want to tell your story. This, this offering, these decisions, these connection cards with whatever prayer requests or spiritual commitments are being made, it's a simple way of expressing obedience and faith to you. Receive it in your name. Amen. God bless you.